Hi, this is Tanya Domi. Welcome to The Thought Project, recorded at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, fostering groundbreaking research and scholarship in the arts, social sciences, and sciences. In this space, we talk with faculty and doctoral students about the big thinking and big ideas generating cutting-edge research, informing New Yorkers and the world. During June Pride Month and the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots that took place in New York City in 1969, kicking off the modern LGBTQ civil rights movement, the Thought Project podcast will host guests who will share their stories. Today, we host Dr. Perry Halkaitis, a public health psychologist, researcher, educator, and advocate who is dean and professor of biostatistics and urban global public health at the School of Public Health at Rutgers University. Dr. Halkaitis obtained a PhD in educational psychology from the Graduate Center CUNY in 1995. He is also the author of The Public Lives of Gay Men from Stonewall to the Queer Generation, published by Oxford University Press 2019. Welcome, Perry, to The Thought Project. Thank you for having me. Um, Thanks for coming on to the program today. Um, As an openly gay man who is HIV positive, you have been a tireless advocate for the lives of members of the LGBTQ community for decades and for the rights of those who are HIV positive. Um, How have the lives, in your opinion, how have the lives of LGBTQ citizens in America changed since that seismic moment at the Stonewall Inn 50 years ago? Well, thank you for that question. I would, you know, I think that over the course of the last 50 years, You know, my own work and the research of others has shown that certainly social and political conditions have been slightly improved since that time. I think of recent, unfortunately, there's been a deterioration in some of those advances forward. But despite the the fact that um, that we have had these advances, I think that the well-being of the population is still subpar. And I think that's in part because the healthcare profession at large is not well equipped to address to address the specific uh, health needs of the population, and because the LGBTQ population continues to experience marginalization and victimization, which undermines their their health and their well-being, or our health and our well-being. So, so I think you know certainly. You know, I have just written an editorial for the American Journal of Public Health and where I describe the Stonewall riots as a, a, a necessary precondition to AIDS activism, as a, as a necessary precondition to marriage equality. All of these uh, linear connections have happened, um, and things have certainly socially and politically gotten a little better. But I think we still have a long way to go in sort of improving the lives and having having LGBTQ people have an equal place in our society here in the United States. That, I'm not even touching the rest of the world where I think uh, advances, you know, in certain parts of the world are are, are horrific or have not even occurred. Sure, I, I I share some of those observations. I actually am a scholar and uh, I, I uh, focus on Southeastern Europe and the Balkans. I'm actually writing a book about the LGBT uh, human rights movement there. And so you're right. 
yeah, you're right. There's like two steps forward, one step back. Very difficult circumstances there, although many success stories too, but very early in its development. Um, I, I um, Can I just, let me just add that, because I think it's a really important point, because I think when people, like, I, I love that you're doing the work, you know, in South Yours, I am, you know, Greek ancestry. I, I spend time in Greece doing work, you know, around HIV and other issues. I mean, so when people think Europe, they think, you know, they think, you know, the UK and France were certainly there, our, our advances that parallel the United States. That's not the case in Greece, as you know perfectly sure. well, right? Oh, which yeah, is, and Serbia, like, Serbia. Bosnia, Montenegro, Albania. Yeah, it's it, you're right. And I have actually met some of the people who lead uh, Greek, uh, Greece pride there. So, you know, it's you're right. Very difficult situation. I say, you know, well, you know, it, you know, this is like ridiculous comment that's made to me over and over again when I reveal that I'm Greek. And people say, well, your people, your people, you are created gay. And I'm like, no, they, my people didn't create gay. Gay is an identity, you know, in a, you know, in a, in a culture, and I, and certainly men in ancient Greece had sex with young boys, but that was not being about being a gay man, right? So there's a notion that somehow, I mean, actually, I think that whole thing was about misogyny, quite frankly. But I think that you know, uh, there's a long way to go there, and you and you know, because you probably have been there recently, that you know, there was an an, an HIV positive Greek American man who was who was murdered by the police, you know, about a year ago, and that's still and that Zach Kostopoulos, and that still goes on solved. Anyway, thank you for bringing that up. Oh, absolutely. So, um, well, your your points are well made on subpar uh, with respect to health, health care, uh, responsiveness from the medical community. Can you talk about that in a little bit more detail? Yeah, I, I certainly can. So, I look, I think that, look, at, at prior to the Stonewall riots, when, you know, we were all being arrested and imprisoned just because of the people we loved, the healthcare community didn't even know we were president, certainly was making no effort to attend to us. I think the Stonewall riots happened, and there is a, you know, sort of a notice to society at large that, you know, that being a gay person, LGBTQ person, is something that is part of, 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 of American society. And in 1973 and 74, the American Psychological Association and the American Psychiatric Association, it's actually reversed order, um, declassified homosexuality as a psychopathology. So it's not even 50 years uh, you know that 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 those those events took place. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's, it's incredible, right? But so so you have an, and a recognition certainly in the early seventies that homosexuality is not homosexuality is not um, a, a psychopathology. Um, then the AIDS crisis happens, and I think that you know that really catapulted the LGBTQ population, gay men working with lesbians, working with all sorts of folks, to say, "Look, healthcare providers, you must pay attention to us. You not only are not only are we here, but you must attend to our well-being." And I, despite the fact that I think that HIV has been devastating to the population and to society at large, I actually think this is one of the benefits that came out of it, and. That that moves us forward to the 21st century, where I think we are beginning. We still have a long way to go to to train medical providers, nurses, other healthcare providers, and provide them with the tools that they need to deal with their population. We still have a long way to go. Most medical students only get four four hours or a, a couple of sessions on LGBTQ health, and then they're expected to solve all these issues. So I think certainly you know things are better 
But I think what we need to do is, is, as I say throughout the book, is we need to normalize LGBTQ people, right? We need to, so it, it can't be that people are being trained to be, provide health without attending to all parts of the population. And LGBTQ people should not just be an afterthought that gets four hours of competency, cultural competency training. Right, it should be integrated. Across the Everything board. Everything should be integrated. Right. Yeah, just, just like, just like in, me and my, my husband is a eighth grade social studies teacher. You know, he integrates all aspects of history with his students. It's not just, okay, now we're going to do black history, now we're going to do gay history, or now we're going to do women's history. History is just history. Healthcare is just healthcare. That means you deal with all people and attend to their differences and attend to their specific needs. Yes. So in your new book, which you've mentioned and which we've we've already discussed in the introduction uh, about you, um, you employ ethnographic research and, and you use, obviously, public health data. Uh, you studied the coming out experiences of 15 gay men ages 19 to 78 from diverse racial and ethnic backgrounds, six of whom identify as HIV positive. Tell us what you found out, and tell us what surprised you. Yeah, thank you for that question. So let me just first say that I actually first interviewed 23 men because I, I felt like when I, had, when, I, when I had gotten to a certain point, I still hadn't received, reached a point of saturation, um, and I, I think I was still learning. But I ended up in the book just highlighting 15 men because I felt that that was much more accessible to the reader if I had five for each generation. Okay, so what, 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 what did what, you find out? What did I find out and what does, what surprised me or what doesn't surprise me? So, so I, so I guess, you know, what I, what, I, what, what doesn't surprise me, I'll start there. And I think this is the hypothesis that I went into it, into the book with, is the idea that while socio and political conditions are somewhat better in the United States, and certainly media representations of LGBTQ people are advancing, you know, when you think about film and music and, 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 and television, that in fact, the, the coming out process is a psychological process. And that it doesn't matter if you're four years old when you're feeling that there's something different about you. There may be all these advances going on in society, but your feeling of otherness and your feeling of difference is something that you're not reconciling with all those advances. And so that commonality, that feeling of otherness, which I actually think I trace to the, to the, to the development of loneliness and depression and substance use in the population, if it goes un- uncontrolled, is pretty consistent across time. So that's number one. Um, I think the thing that was revealing to me in these conversations was how articulate and incredibly intelligent the youngest generation, the millennials, who I call the queer generation, were in their verbalization and their emotional responses about what it means to be a gay man. For, for them, gay man was not a monolith like it was very much for like the older guys. For, for the, right, for them, there was this very, very, very nuanced understanding of gender and culture and class and ethnicity and, and race and gay identity and gender identity that all sort of intersected. And they verbalized it in a way that, you know, was really, for me, enlightening. I mean, I knew about it intellectually. I had read about it. I had written about it. But they, the, the emotional reaction that they had to and they, how they spoke about it and about the need to chip away at this archetype of the, you know, the archetype of the hyper-masculine white gay man, that was like, to me, not only um, 
I guess it was it was it was riveting to me more than anything else, and I spent a lot of time in the book thinking about that. Um, and then I would say that the other thing that was really interesting to me that came out pretty consistently as a theme, you know, which I I guess I knew, but I didn't really ever it never came to my mind. But I talk about it in the book is that coming out is not a one time one time event, right? Coming out for an LGBTQ people goes on throughout the course of their lifetime. And I remember during the course of the interviews, uh, coming to that understanding and remembering that when I left NYU about two years ago and I went to Rutgers to assume the dean's role. I had to come out all over again. Yes, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, every day we make a decision. Every day. Do I come out? Do I not come out? Is it appropriate for me to come out or not? You know, this is this is what confronts all LGBT people. I think you're, yeah, I completely agree. And so, it, but, and I will say that at 56 years old with a person, you know, you know, my life experiences and the power and the privilege that I've, that I have in my, in my life that I, that I, you know, recognize, you know, it's easier, right? Because I am in this position of authority. But, you know, I, I, it reminds me of all those times, you know, I mean, it raised for me even though I'm in this very, very advantageous position as a white gay man of, of means, it, it, it raised all those negative, horrible feelings I had as a younger man about the times I would have to come out to people. And I, you know, I, and, and, and said, that's like so very real still. And you're right. You know, when do we come out? How do we come out? To whom do we come out? Is it safe to come out? This is like, I, 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 I challenge straight people to think this way, that they have to do that every day of their lives. This is the running thing in your head that it's always there it's always in the back of your mind you're not always conscious of it obviously because that would be emotionally intolerant but but yeah but in fact this is always in your head interesting interesting takeaways too and i want to talk about the millennials now you have articulated i thought it was very interesting you have articulated three generations of the lgbtq movement in america the Stonewall Inn moment 50 years ago, which we're all celebrating, commemorating in this incredible June Pride Month. And then the second one, obviously being HIV, AIDS generation, which emerged initially in 1980 and 1981. And then the millennials in which you really connect them to and identify them with a global recession, which launched in 2007 and 2008, and it's lagging presence. Uh, It's still very, very not only present here, but it's also very present in Europe, for example, in my area of research. So let's talk about those millennials. I mean, um, we can we can talk about we know about the historical figures and you, you have spoken and written eloquently about HIV AIDS, which has changed considerably. I mean, there were moments um, in 1996 when I had friends who were literally given their, um, they were given their death, uh, you know, death. They had side, bedside priests giving them blessings uh, and prayers because they were expected not to live. And then somebody was on their deathbed that I know quite well. The cocktail kicked in, and he's alive 35 years later. Um that's really we've seen a big shift there. But what are what are some of the challenges with the HIV AIDS generation? And then I like to talk about the millennials. 
Yeah, so I think yeah, I thank you for for framing it that way, and I think yeah, I mean for those of us who lived through that period and remember it, I mean, very dark moments. You know, the height of the epidemic. You know, ninety three to ninety five was when most people died here in the in the United States, um, and I remember those moments too. This Lazarus syndrome that you describe when people were like you know, for all intents and purposes, we're dying, then all of a sudden we're living. And that, you know, so the thing about the psychological and social and emotional processes that that the impacts that that has on somebody's life. But, you know, to your point, you know, the fact of the matter is, despite the advances and despite the fact that now we have biomedical technologies in the form of treatment as prevention, which, you know, confers upon a positive person the ability not to transfer, not to transfer the virus if their viral load is undetectable, and the use of pre-exposure prophylaxis, or the use, which is the use of an antiviral once a day, served in the form of like a birth control pill. You know, these, these advances are the last, yeah, have happened in the last decade, despite all of this, despite. We still have about 40,000, 50,000 new infections in this country every year. And in this country, the majority of those infections are in gay men, and the majority of those infections are in gay men of color. And so, you know, the challenge we have in eradicating this disease is that despite these biomedical advances and despite an administration on the federal level that thinks it's going to end AIDS with pharmaceuticals, you know, this is a socially as much as a virally produced condition. And I think, you know, I tie, I tie the ongoing HIV epidemic in the United States and certainly in gay black men and certainly in gay, and gay men more, large, more largely to the social, you know, the social conditions that fuel the disease. Like people don't just wake up and say, you know, I'm going to acquire HIV or I'm going to become an opioid addict or I'm going to become obese or whatever it is, whatever the health condition is. It's social conditions and minority stressors that get people to this place in their lives. And the Trump administration just sort of thinks that we're going to get pills and everything's going to be fine. Well, at the same time, they're chipping away at LGBTQ rights left and right, right? I actually think, I just, I think I just actually wrote an editorial where I'm saying, I don't, I think there's going to be a, you know, what's happened since he's been the president is that the, the HIV rates, which should have been falling, have stayed stable. And I bet you they're going to go up because when you are bombarded with these negative, negative, political and social conditions in these policies, of course, it's going to affect your health. So things are better with HIV, but we have to keep an eye on it. It's still, we still don't have a cure. And I think that that is, you know, until we have a cure, it's going to be very much in our, in our population. But to your other question about millennials, and I, I appreciate you asking that because I think it was fascinating to me also is, you know, we, I mean, I don't, the data are out there, right? The data out there showing that, you know, people in their 20s and, you know, even in their early 30s are living at home longer. They're, they're in debt. They can't get jobs. They're being, they're, it's, a gener, it's a generation that's not going to do as well as, you know, our generation, you know, or my generation. And, you know, this is something that is very real in the minds of, these, of, of the queer generation. How do I go to establish my life in the world when the opportunities don't exist there, right? I'm already trying to reconcile my sexual identity, and perhaps it's a little better than it was 30 years ago. But now I can't even leave my parents' home to go and establish my life on my own because social, uh, social and uh, economic conditions prevent that from happening. And I think this rests very, very heavily on the minds of, of millennials, of the queer generation. You know, I have, I've spoken at conferences where I've said, you know, I feel for this generation. It never in my mind, when I left the Graduate Center or when I finished Columbia in 1981, uh, 84, when, 84, that I would not have a career. I always knew it was going to happen, and, it, and in fact, did happen. If I were an 18-year-old right now going to Columbia, I don't know if I would feel the same way. 
as I did, you know, in 1981. And I think this is a burden, This the global crisis that manifests here and around the world. We, you've seen it in Greece, where 40% of young people are unemployed, is going to have a toll on people's, of course, economic well-being, but also on their health. And so, um, you know, you know, you know, you know, it's going it's going to it's going to challenge millennials to have to think in different ways about how they make their place in the world. And I'm not sure, you know, they've quite figured out how to do it yet, but they will, because it's probably of the three groups I talked to the most the most nuanced uh, thinking and uh, sort of like out of the box thinking group of all of them. So so. um yeah, I mean it's 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 a it's a huge challenge. So I, I also I'll say one more thing, which is, you know, when you think about you know HIV or other health conditions, yeah, if you know, and bombarding the population, maybe risk behaviors aren't doesn't feel so bad when you're like can't, when you don't have a job or you have to live at home and right and so and so that's why I think I, I, I raise the point throughout the book about the economic conditions and tied there because I think it is it is very much tied to um, the health of the population and the well-being the psychological the emotional the social the, the physical health of the population yes and in, when you refer to them as a as the queer generation what what I have discovered having done some uh, movement work with millennials in the last decade. Um, and also there's a forthcoming study out of the Public Science Project here at the Graduate Center where we have discovered that the millennials are the most multiracial, multicultural generation in U.S. history. And, and one of the outcomes of that is that those who identify as queer, not only do they identify as queer, but in this new study that's forthcoming, uh, it, they indicate they indicate that they identify themselves in with more than three hundred different identities out of this study. So they're very different from the rest of the movement in terms of where we are historically. So you have the boomers in the movement, the Gen Xers, the Gen Yers. Uh, and now you have these millennials that are very, very different. And what they think is important, their priorities are very different. I agree. I agree. I think that, look, in the conversations, it was so like, the, you know, the Stonewall guys who were like in their 60s and 70s, they, they couldn't even begin to articulate intersectionality ideas. There was like nowhere on their radar. Right. Gay was gay was gay was gay. Um, the, the my generation, the AIDS guys, I mean, they could do like, oh yeah, I'm a brother and a and a father and a gay man, right? They could do that, but not really a mosaic or an intersection. It, you're completely right. This ability to think about oneself in these multi-dimensional ways is a an intelligence and a, an emotional intelligence that I think this generation has. Uh, over and above any generation that we've never seen before. And I think it's refreshing and amazing. And, you know, quite frankly, scary to those who want to keep white straight men in power. Yeah, or cisgender white gay men forward, too. Um, so this is a nice segue because um, I took note of your last chapter, which is entitled Intersectionality and Racism, which was refreshing to see in a book by a cisgender white gay man. Um, 
racism, as as you know, how how first of all, how does this intersectionality play out in terms of your research among white gay men and gay men of, of color? And then, as you know, Perry, racism remains a significant challenge in 2019 America. We have a lot of work to do. But what what does your research say? about the dynamics of intersectionality and racism uh, within within the gay male community. Yeah, so thanks for that. So look, about a year and a half ago, I wrote an editorial for the Newark Star-Ledger um, where I basically, you know, it was sort of like the springboard for this chapter because I was thinking about this chapter, and it was about racism in the population. And, you know, all these straight people came up to me afterwards and they said, we had no idea. And I'm like, what? Like, LGBTQ people are people, right? You know, and we know that the marginalized tend to marginalize and the oppressors, the oppressed tend to oppress, right? So why would we, why would we think that, that LGBTQ people would be any different in terms of their racism? So having said that, um, I, you know, I just will, I will, I will tell a personal story and then I will just talk about, you know, the ideas more broadly, which is, you know, I remember as a young gay man navigating social spaces here in New York City where I grew up and they were very segregated by race, right? Like the white party, which was like this circuit party, yes. was a white party. Yes, right? it really like, was. Okay. Yes, it really was. And like and, and act up despite what my friends Peter Staley and other others may claim was not a multiracial phenomenon. It was very white, it was a, it, very white. It was a very white. It was a very white, often people from means... Had privilege, um, that probably, without a doubt. Right, and privilege that probably helped the, the movement at the end of the day. But let's not make believe that there were people of color in the room because there really weren't people of color in the room. And I actually am angry that... As a group, what we didn't do was then transfer the knowledge and the skills to those who were most in need of these knowledge and skills in fighting the epidemic. Okay, so say having said that, I think there's this ongoing challenge in the in the population that has to deal with, like you know, you know, the, the same challenges that white people face or straight is what gay people face also. And I think it is better, and this taps into our last comment, our last set of comments about millennials who are thinking about these intersectional ideas in a much more sophisticated way. But I think that, you know, for the older folks, there is an, and, and maybe, and I write about this in the, in the book, there is this, still this segregation, this, I think, objectification of, that goes on around racial issues, around Asian men being bottoms, and, you know, all those, like, horrible terms that, that you hear gay men using, right? Like, rice queen and stuff like that, which is, is just despicable to Ooh, me, that's, right? That's really not, yeah, that's it's, nasty. It's, it's, it's just, the whole thing is just nasty. And I think that comes from a sexual objectification. And I think it comes from a sexual objectification that keeps the white gay man in power. Yes, right? dominant. And it's like yes, I agree. Dominant. Yeah. Right. And that, and you know, you open any magazine, you know, or, you know, I'm, I'm dating myself, magazine, you go to any website or whatever, and the images of gay men are white, buff, chiseled men. And so what is considered A-list still you know, in the gay community is that. And I think the young guys are just like, not, not, I, I just have had it. Let me tell you about one of the men I interviewed, who is a young Ghanaian man, um, um, who in the book, I believe his name is Yasser. Um, and he very, you know, strong, big body, 
you know, came into the interview, you know, he's like in his early 20s and sat down and had the brightest yellow nail polish I've ever seen in my life, right? And uh, it sort of blew my mind for a second, but that's because I'm a 56-year-old man of the age generation, right? And he was completely comfortable in his body, you know, this body that was clearly built, that was clearly, he spent time at the gym, and these uh, yellow nails, and he was so comfortable and fluid in his gender, and that was amazing to see. Um, so, so this is all to say, you know, there are racist tendencies very much present in the population still. Um, we have to question ourselves as much as we question everybody else. There is objectification that comes out that I think is very much at the heart of, of the racism that, you know, that exists in the population. But again, I think, you know, with a new generation that's really pushing the boundaries and saying, look, uh, gay is not gay is not gay is not gay. Um, it's going to get better. Well, I think we, that's very interesting because I wanted to end on a profile uh, that, you know, that stayed with you. Is there another personal story that you that you uh, came across during your research you want to share with us uh, quickly? Yeah. Well, just really quickly, the other, I think the, there's a, you know, there's, I will, I, will, I will connect two stories. But the one that stays with me the most, I think, when I think about it, because I had to interview him twice, because it was a, um, um, Wilson, who was the African-American man who was 78 years old, who grew up in Baltimore in the 1950s, who actually just arrived you know, at the interview with volumes of his love letters from his boyfriend from the 1950s, which was, like, incredible, wow. incredible. Okay. Right, and, and, you know, and quite frankly, wow, just, you know, he was interesting because his whole, his identity was a lot about his race and not so much about his sexual rights. And, uh-huh. Yeah, and all of that, which is really, really interesting. And he you know, spoke a lot about, you know, um, you know, Baldwin and, and, you know, and others and just what that meant to his life. So that's so that's so he sticks out. But then the other one, the other story that I really love to tell is, you know, the one of the younger men talking about coming out to his parents and one of the age generation men, um, Emilio, and Emilio talks about writing a letter to his parents before he goes and visits them and, you know, to come out to them and this he can prepare them. And you fast forward to the story in the 21st century, who's Reed, and he does the same thing, except he does it with a text message, right? So, like, very you different. Know, <laughs> same, right, right, but same type of communication, different medium. Yeah, different right? medium, different like, modality. Yep. Terry Halkaitis, I just want to congratulate you on a wonderful book. Uh, people should go out and get it. This is Pride Month. It's Stonewall 50, The Public Lives of Gay Men from Stonewall to the Queer Generation. Congratulations to you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning into The Thought Project. And thanks to today's guest, Dr. Perry Halkaitis, Dean of the Rutgers University School of Public Health. The Thought Project is brought to you with production, engineering, and technical assistance by Sarah Fishman. I'm Tanya Domi. Tune in next week.